Good morning. Thank you so much for being here. Happy Father's Day. My wife said that to me this morning. I thought, oh, that is today, isn't it? I called my dad on the way here this morning and wished him Happy Father's Day, and he goes, is that today? So it tells you how focused I am on Father's Day, but Happy Father's Day to all of our fathers. I know some of you here visiting your father, and thank you for coming our way. If you are visiting, we are in the middle of a series talking about spiritual warfare and the fight of our lives. This morning, we're looking at more specifically how we can deal with the devil. And typically, any sporting event, you have a home team and a visiting team. And the visiting team is in enemy territory, so to speak. So they are entering onto the home team's field or court. And for the most part, the home team is against them. So they're booing them, and and the visiting team is trying to perform even though they are in surroundings that are foreign to them. You ever heard of home field advantage? That's a real thing, so much so that it affects betting odds across all sports. My friends, we are the visiting team in this world. Satan has his home turf, and we are operating in a belief system in a world where its values and principles are are very different than what we hold dear. And as the visitors, we're trying to win the battle. I mean, after all, the visiting team is still expected to perform, you know. They're still expected to try and win the game. That's what we're trying to do. And by and large, the home crowd doesn't like us. The world around us boos us. Maybe that's because we have a long history of winning. We're kind of like Duke basketball. Nobody likes a team that wins all the time. And when I say we, I'm talking about God's people, of course. But the devil doesn't act like a loser. He doesn't hang his head in defeat. Instead, he does his best to play the role of spoiler. In the realm of sports, sometimes teams play the role of spoiler. And what that means is, if a team is not very good, and they're playing a team that is good, maybe that team that's not so good has the opportunity to ruin the good team's chance at making the playoffs or the postseason. And if they happen to slip up and beat them, then they say that that team played the role of spoiler. The devil relishes the opportunity to play the role of spoiler. He would love nothing more than to keep us from making the postseason. And so, as the visiting team, again, we have to fight. The visiting team is still expected to perform on the court or on the field. And so we've got a battle. You know, every now and then I get an anthill in my yard. And if you ever walk up to one of these anthills and you look at it, you see these little annoying creatures working frantically and furiously to try and please the queen. Do you know what it is when a colony of ants builds a hill on my my lawn? You know what that's called? It's called building a kingdom on my turf because that's what they've done. They have built a kingdom on my lawn, and I can't have that. How dare they, right? You can't do that. You have no right to build your kingdom on my turf, and so I have to do something about it. The same is true in a spiritual sense. We are building a kingdom 
God is building his kingdom on the devil's turf. Now, ultimately, it's God's turf, right? Ultimately, it all belongs to him. But we have to understand who it is we're fighting as the visiting team. It's not, it's not the president. It's not SCOTUS. It's not partisan politics. It's never humans, right? This is not a flesh and blood war. This is an unseen war. It is a spiritual battle. And so, therefore, we're not fighting humans, although humans can act devilish at times, although human beings can do some pretty devilish things. The ones that we're fighting are the ones that are against God in the invisible realm. We are fighting an unseen battle, and there are many who have been deceived. There are those who are trapped. There are others who have unknowingly given themselves to the rule and reign of Satan. The physical is affected by the spiritual, which means that if you want to address a problem in the physical, you have to go to the spiritual, right? Instead of looking at the fruit and messing with the fruit, we need to deal with the root. And the root of the issue always has to do with headship. Look with me in Colossians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 13, it reads, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by, in, uh, by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All th- things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him, to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So who's the boss? That's the question, right? Who's running things here? Well, We know that God is in charge and he has bestowed headship upon his son who rules and reigns the kingdom. So Paul leaves no doubt as to who is running things. I was a head coach at 24 years old at Cord Charlotte, Arkansas. And in Arkansas, maybe this way here, but the baseball coach wears a uniform like the the players. So I'm 24, only six years older than my seniors. And it never failed that when the umpire came to give last-minute instructions to the coach, he couldn't find him. Now, my assistant coach was in his 40s. He was older. And so it always happened that the umpire would come, and he would scan the dugout, and he'd pick out my assistant coach, and he would start giving him instructions. And my assistant coach would say, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not the coach he is. And then there was this look of bewilderment. I thought he was one of the kids. For me, for my team, It was hard to discern who was in charge. Not so in the kingdom. We have no doubt who's in charge and who is running things, right? Now, as I've said before, it won't always be this way. There will be an end to this current temporary arrangement. Paul said it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26 and following. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. 
for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is clear that this excludes the Father who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. So God currently reigns through the Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is our mediator. However, the Father will not always rule through a mediator. There is an end goal to this current arrangement. After Jesus rises from the dead, Paul says, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has established all rule and authority and power. So one day, one day evil will be vanquished. All evil will be vanquished. Evildoers will face the judgment. The sons and daughters of the kingdom will enjoy the rule and reign of God forever and ever. But God will no longer rule through a mediator. And do you know why? Because you don't need one. All evil is vanquished. Sin and death, the devil, they're all gone. They're out of the picture, right? God rises victorious. He triumphs. He decides there's going to be a point when, when I'm done and I'm going to end it all. And at that point, what do you need a mediator for? Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus won't still rule and reign. It just means that we will all be glorified to rule and reign with him for all eternity. That's Romans 8, 17, 2 Timothy 2 and 12. But I want to go back to what Paul wrote in Colossians. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to combine Colossians and Galatians. Let's go back to Colossians and what Paul said. Notice the language. Rescued us from the domain of darkness transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son reconcile all things to him having made peace through the blood of his cross so so keep those phrases in mind and now go over to chapter 2 of colossians and notice verse 8 and following paul writes see to it that there is no one who takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception in accordance with human tradition, in accordance with the elementary principles of the world, rather than in accordance with Christ. For in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over every ruler and authority, and in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision performed without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your wrongdoings and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our wrongdoings, having canceled the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So again, I want you to notice the language. In him. With him. In him, with him, in him, with him. You see it over and over again in Colossians 1 and 2. Paul establishes that the authority is in Jesus, and then he speaks to the Christian's transfer of ownership. God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So there is a change in headship. If we want to remain secure, then we operate under his authority in him, with him. We find protection. 
Paul even writes, in him all things hold together. So if you're broken, if you're falling apart, it means that you have come unglued from the head. So many of us are flip-floppers, right? I mean, I'm raising my hand. I know I am at times. You know, we find ourselves flip-flopping all the time from one kingdom to another. It's like we have one foot in one kingdom and one foot in the other kingdom. We constantly flip-flop from one kingdom to another. Maybe we come to church on Sunday and cuss like a sailor on Monday. Maybe we do our, our daily devotional in the morning and then we spend the afternoon gossiping and slandering and meddling. Maybe we uh, you know, say our prayers at night before we go to bed and we wake up the next morning angry and vengeful. I mean, it, it's hard, right? We're all limping disciples, and we all find ourselves flip-flopping from time to time. We live like Jesus the first day of the week and like the devil the rest of it. And we wonder why we're broken. We wonder why we're hurting and why we can't seem to get control of our lives. And the reason is because we're not in union. We're unglued. We're not in alignment. We're serving two heads over and over again. I visit with Christians who say that their, their marriage is broken, their spirit is broken, their heart is broken, their faith is broken. And without fail, the one thing that every broken individual has in common is that they're not living in union. You know, it's a sad reality that when we need the church the most, when we need our relationship with God the most, it's when we seem to pull back from those things. We find ourselves out of alignment. We find ourselves broken and falling apart and don't really think that maybe we need to look to the head and see if we're still attached. Have we come unglued along the way? It's not always an intentional thing. Sometimes it's gradual. We, we go about life and you know, we don't make the minor tweets and adjustments and, and we wake up one day and say, wow, I, I'm... I'm not where I need to be. I've come unglued somewhere along the way. Remember, Satan is crafty, he's cunning, and he needs a vehicle. So don't give him one. Think about it this way. Let's say someone has a gun pointed directly at you. A real-life gun, not my finger. They have a real gun pointed at you, and they say, don't move. What are you going to do? Well, my guess is you're not going to move, right? Because you're afraid that if you do, he's going to shoot you. But let's say that the person pointing that gun at you says don't move, and then they decide to pull the trigger. Click. Click, click. It's empty. How would you feel then? My guess is you would relax a little bit. You'd probably breathe a sigh of relief. My friends, the devil's pointing his gun at you, but it doesn't have any bullets in it. The gun is empty. Now, if you don't know that, you're going to be scared, right? Someone's pointing a gun at you, and they haven't pulled the trigger. You don't know if it's empty or if it's loaded, and so you're going to be scared, right? Go back to Genesis chapter 3. I know we've talked about this quite a bit in our series, but I think it bears repeating. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any animal of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God really said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? 
The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you certainly will not die. I mean, for God knows that on the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll become like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves waist coverings. I said it in the first lesson of this series. The devil operates by consent and cooperation. He has no authority. He's a formidable foe. He's powerful. He's sly. He's cunning. He tempts. He entices. But he has no authority. He's not deity. He's powerful, but has no authority. The only authority he has is what you give to him. He operates by consent and cooperation. He needs a carrier. He needs a vehicle. So don't be one. Don't give him that opportunity. Here's the deal. Adam and Eve allowed the devil to come onto their home turf, to God's home field, and ruin their paradise. Notice the strategy. Has God really said, you certainly will not die. God's just jealous. He doesn't want you to be on his level. Do you see what the devil is doing? He's trying to get Eve to transfer her allegiance. He can't force it because he doesn't have that authority. He's trying to get her to transfer her allegiance. He's attempting to deceive her into getting out from under the authority of God and placing herself under his authority. That's how he operates. He needs consent and cooperation. But he has has the power but not the authority. Eve and Adam both allowed a visitor to come onto God's territory and bring hell into their lives. They fumbled the ball, and it cost them their livelihood. Keep reading with me. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you more than all the livestock and more than any animal of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will make enemies of you and the woman and of your offspring and her descendant. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Our daily directive is to operate under the authority of the one who has crushed Satan's head. Stay in alignment. Stay glued to the head. You may be the visiting team. Satan may have the home field advantage, but you've already won. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 16. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Under whose feet? Doesn't say Jesus' feet. Whose feet? Your feet. Exactly. And how do you get to crush Satan's head? How is it that did you crush him with your own feet? By being under the authority of Jesus. By being in alignment, by staying glued to the head. Then whatever Jesus accomplishes, you accomplish, right? Whatever he does, you do. When God wins, you win. The devil's gun is empty. He can wave it around and he can scare a bunch of people. He can point it in your direction, but he has no authority. He can pull the trigger all he wants, but there's nothing he can do unless you allow him to. You know what you do when you come unglued from the head? You know what happens when you get out of alignment? 
you load the devil's gun. You give him the bullets. And that's a scary thing. But when we operate under alignment, his gun might as well be a toy gun. Nothing scary about it at all. Jesus really sets the example in all of this. He is the antithesis of Adam and Eve's story. He is, in contrast, what they should have done. Remember when uh, he is baptized and he goes out into the wilderness in, in the flesh, he is weak, he is vulnerable. And that's when Satan decides to tempt him. And so Satan comes at him full force. But here's the deal. Jesus allows the voice of God to be the loudest in his life. Something Adam and Eve didn't do. Jesus combats the words of Satan with the word of God. It is written. It is written. Satan couldn't force Jesus to turn those stones into bread. He couldn't push him off the pinnacle of the temple. He couldn't make Jesus bow down and worship him. He didn't have that authority. That's why he had to tempt him. Because he's powerful. He can entice. He can tempt. But he can't make you do anything. He couldn't make Jesus do anything because he's not deity, right? But he was trying to get Jesus to transfer his allegiance. And of course, Jesus didn't take the bait. Not only did Jesus not give way to his authority, he utterly destroyed the authority of Satan and sealed victory on the cross. Look with me at Joshua chapter 10 as we close. Joshua chapter 10. You know, we've talked ad nauseum about how the Old Testament sets up the New Testament. We've talked about how many characters in the Old Testament are precursors to the anointed one, the Messiah, and Joshua is certainly one of those. We've talked about in past sermons the similarities between Joshua and Jesus. We see over and over again in the Old Testament people who were Messiahs in one sense. They just weren't the one true Messiah of Jesus. We see people who were anointed in the Old Testament as kings and leaders that had a lot of Christ-like qualities, but they weren't Jesus himself. They were a precursor or a shadow to the Messiah. And we see that with Joshua. But in Joshua chapter 10, we see that the kings of the surrounding nations are harassing Israel. Now, Joshua is ruler at this time over God's people, and five kings get together with the intent of destroying Israel. But they had messed with the wrong ruler and the wrong God, right? Joshua and Israel proved to be too much for the enemy nations to handle. And the five kings, they run and they hide in a cave. And Joshua commands the people to roll a stone in front of the entrance to trap those kings inside and then go and attack the armies from behind. And after striking down their enemies, notice what happened. Then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring these five kings out to me from the cave. They did so. And they brought these five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought these kings out to Joshua, Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the leaders of the men of war who had gone with him, come forward, put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came forward and put their feet on their necks. Joshua then said to them, do not fear or be dismayed, be strong and courageous. For the Lord will do this to all your enemies with whom you fight. Notice the last part. Joshua then said to them, Do not fear or be dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for the Lord will do this to all your enemies with whom you fight. Joshua is ruler over God's people. He is God's ruler. 
And Joshua says, even though we've whipped these guys, even though we've beat them up and killed them, even though God has given us the victory, I want you to come and I want you to put your feet on their necks. Think about what God, or Joshua is telling them. Joshua is saying, I want you to actualize what God is going to do to all of your enemies in the future. If you fight on God's side, if you stand with Him, you're going to be victorious. Sin, Satan, death, all those enemies are under the feet of Jesus. And because they are under His feet, they're under your feet. I want you to see what that looks like. Come, put your feet on their necks. So, if you want to deal with the devil effectively, then you have to keep your foot on his neck. When I was coaching, I used to tell our kids, especially like at halftime or at timeout, if we were winning, I would tell them, when you got your, your foot on their neck, you don't lift up to reset it, right? You keep the hammer down. Maybe pretty, you know, picturesque terms, grotesque terms for a basketball game, but still, you get the idea. When you got them down, you keep them down. And certainly that applies to spiritual warfare. When you've got your, your foot placed firmly on the neck of the devil, don't lift up to reset it. You keep it there and you keep bearing down, right? If you want to deal with the devil effectively, then you keep your foot on his neck. But if you don't act in concert with God's will, his headship, if you get out of alignment with his values and his principles, if you just keep jumping kingdoms, you'll never realize the benefit that comes from living under his rule and reign. Instead, you'll constantly be fighting for power. And just let me tell you, that's a battle you won't win. You have no shot at winning that battle. You're not powerful enough. So fight on God's side and keep your foot on the neck. You know, I, I like watching football. I like watching specifically the Arkansas Razorbacks and the Dallas Cowboys. And I really like watching them when they're good, which means that I haven't liked watching them for quite some time. <laughs> but many times on a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon, I'll kick back on the couch and I'll turn on the game and I'll, I'll watch as much of it as I can stand. And every time I watch a game, Scores are shown from other games, right? If you've watched any football game, you know that they periodically break in and they show highlights from another game. During the game you're watching, there's a ticker at the bottom of the screen that, that shows other scores, or maybe it's in the upper right-hand corner. It shows the scores of the game. There, there's all kinds of, of television networks during football season that are dedicated to showing, uh, you know, summaries of all the games and talking about all the games and, and, and commentating on all the games. But sometimes I'll be watching a game and you'll see the score up there, a score that maybe you're interested in, but you don't want to watch that game. You want to watch the game that you're currently tuned into. And after the score, it'll have, you know, the two teams, their score. And then afterwards, it'll have a, it'll have a big giant F. You know what that means? It, it means final. It means the game's over, right? So I can see the score. I can see that it's, that it's ended, and I can see who won, even though I never watched the game. You know, if it was a particularly good game, they may replay it again and again and again. ESPN does this thing called Instant Classic where they will replay a really good game that just happened the same night, maybe the next day, maybe periodically throughout the week. They even have a channel called ESPN Classic where they just replay old games that were 10, 20, 30 years ago. Sometimes I'll tune in and I'll watch some of those games. I know how they turn out. 
Sometimes I'll record a game to go back and watch later. I'll know how it ended because I saw the score, but I'll go back and watch it anyway. Sometimes I record the Razorbacks or the Cowboys, go back and watch it later. I know the score. I know how it turned out. I just want to watch the game. But in all those scenarios, when I watch the game, I don't get upset. Our kicker may clang one off the upright. I don't get frustrated. Our quarterback may throw an interception. I don't throw the remote at the TV. And you know why? I already know the result. I've seen the score. I know how it ends. My friends, we know how this whole thing ends. Not only have we seen the final score, we can flip through the pages of Scripture to replay the game over and over again. So you're hurting. I get it. But don't lose it. Because you know how this thing ends. So you're dealing with sickness. That's tough. You're dealing with sorrow. I, I, I get it. That's hard. You're dealing with sin. That's a struggle. I get it. But don't lose it. Because we know how this whole thing turns out. Stay in alignment. Stay glued to the head. Keep your foot on the neck of Satan, and you win. We know the ending. We know that Satan's gun is empty. He can point it at you. He can try to scare you, but it doesn't work. The bullets have been removed. Jesus' foot is on his neck, and we are victorious. Do you know why? Because we're under headship. We're in alignment. And that's a great place to be because it's a place of no fear. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for another day. Thank you for this wonderful church family. And God, may we be a church that's after your own heart. May we seek to please you in all that we do. As a church, as individuals, may we always stay in alignment. May we always operate under your rule and reign. And may we always enjoy the benefits of knowing how this whole thing ends. We thank you. We thank you for the victory. And it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. I don't know where you're at this morning as far as in your daily walk with God. Maybe you had not even started a daily walk with God. We'd love to study the Bible with you. Maybe you've been studying. Maybe you're ready to take the next step, whatever that is. If it's baptism, we can take care of that this morning. Perhaps, perhaps you're uh, dealing with difficulty of, of some kind. We can certainly help you with that as well. Whatever your need is, Don's going to lead us in a song. Why don't you come as we stand and as we sing?